Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Good evening, everybody. How y'all doing? We've got a great show planned for you. going to be talking about a uh, new diagnosis. I love neologisms. That's new words that emerge out of cultural changes. And that's kind of such an interesting, fun part of mental health is how um, uh, moments in time and, like I said, shifts in uh, pop culture and, you know, evolving technologies have mental health and psychological impacts and intersections. And so it really does start to shift our experience around what we determine to be mental health. So uh, I'm not, I'm going to make you stick around to our next segment to learn about that, but nomophobia. Ah, yes. It's something that actually all of us have a relationship to it. It was really interesting when I was prepping for that segment, I was thinking, oh man, I see myself in so much of this, you know? It's always an interesting moment, but that's what I love again about mental health is it's an ever-evolving system. So we'll be talking about that and uh, also how work intersects with mental health. And then finally talking about pets. Yep, big part of mental health. Um, May, Mental Health Awareness Month, so I'm I'm really wanting to make sure I'm hitting a lot of different uh, parts of how to take care of ourselves, how to take care of others, uh, battling myths and things like that. So that's, you know, again, what we'll be doing with a lot of the week. Um, Before I get into what I really want to focus on right now, I want to just remind everyone, you know, again, we're asking those around us, hey, how's your mental health, right? We're saying that instead of just how are you, because we're letting them know safe space. We're normalizing those kinds of conversations. We want to let people know we're a safe resource. Also, make sure you're reaching out to, you know, pre-pandemic, during pandemic and post-pandemic, try to check in on at least three people every day. You know, um, I will be sharing later in the week some research that looked at the impact that relationships have on us. And there was really, really profound uh, soundbite that came out of that that hasn't left me. And we'll be talking about that later in the week. But um, yeah, so check in on that. And then also tons of self-care and rest. Tons of self-care and rest, y'all. That's what we need more of. We don't need to be working harder, longer, more. We need to be resting, finding joy and pleasure, and really saying, what do I want my life to be about? And finding that purpose and meaning somewhere within our week, our day, our month. It's been something I've been pondering a lot more. You know, is, is the legacy I'm building right now the legacy I want to leave? And in most ways, yeah, and that's a great thing. Um, and if not, that's where the work remains. 
You know, I work with a lot of individuals later in their life looking back going, okay, I haven't necessarily spent all my time thus far building the legacy I want. What do I want the second half of my life to be? That can be available for people in the first half of life. Although again, the first half of life is often, often centered in uh, structure, right? Getting basic needs met, our identity, uh, career, certain relationality pieces. So um, anywho, but I wanted to talk about just basic, hey, you feeling overwhelmed? Hey, you feeling stressed out? You need to have a few quick tips and reminders as to how to kind of bring back a, a, a soothing mental health perspective. First off, checking on your body. Our bodies tell us a lot of what's going on with us. Often, just saying, what's my posture like? Just don't, don't shift it or change it, but just notice, am I holding myself upright? head up, that's a sign of feeling confident and feeling good. Or is my body tense and tight? It's a sign of holding stress and anxiety, which tells us we need to work on removing the stressor or that anxiety or taking time away from it. And our body's not going to lie. That time away, if your body you're noticing isn't in a relaxed, calm state, well then that didn't work or that wasn't enough. So checking in on that, right? Our, our shoulders may be rounded, our head dropped. That's a sign of shame or sadness. What might you need to address? Often that's what a lot of this is about. What have you been avoiding? What have you been unwilling to look at? What have you been unwilling to move away from or release? Your body's kind of gonna let you know. Again, the more pulled back and upright we are, the more confident and grounded and content we are, the more pulled down and collapsed and dropped we are, our head, our body, our shoulders, the more sad or shame-based we are. So that's that, that's that work. Um, also breathing, just make sure you're doing some deep breathing. It's a really good way to bring yourself back and ground yourself, right? Um, asking for some help, delegating some things, unloading, right? Maybe literally reaching out and saying, Hey, do you have time and the energy for me to process, right? Maybe we need to reorient our schedules. <clears throat> if I were to look at your weekly schedule or daily schedule, would I be able to see just carved out time and space for nothingness? for just leisure and rest? What I see carved out time and space that's rooted in nothing but things that bring you pleasure and joy, but nothing else, it's, you're not making income, it's not productive, it's just, it's fun, that's why. Maybe board games, puzzles, video games, pleasure and joy. Is that built in there, right? Like, and I want the answer to be yes. Would I be able to identify in your day or your week if I looked at, again, a calendar? I'm like, oh, there's some self-care, oh, there's some self-care. Would I also be able to identify socialization? Ah, couples night, time with friends. Ah, you went to spend a couple or you know an afternoon with your mother or father or caregiver. Like, I will make sure you're you're able to demonstrate that. And if not, you probably aren't. Um, go for a walk, take a break, open the blinds, get some fresh air. Just your daily reminder. It's the basic things. I think that's what I like about mental health. Sometimes it's just those really simple basic things that really improve everything. I've been building that into every single day and I can't tell you how exponentially it's changed everything. I'll tell you again, I'll tell you, I've told you before, I'll tell you again and I'll tell you down the road as well. Um, the senses, I've been paying attention to what I'm listening to, music, what I'm smelling, I've been using essential oils and cooking foods. I can't tell you what it's like to smell the lentils I'm cooking, <laughs> I swear. <laughs> and then time with, hugging my cat, spending time with friends. So weigh in on that. But like I said, coming up next, we're gonna be talking about a new diagnosis, nomophobia. Is this you? Most likely it is. Stick around. We'll talk about it. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on Channel Q, brought to you by Astroglide. All right, we're back with uh, nomophobia. I love new words. We call them neologisms. As the world changes, we need new language to uh, accommodate what's going on and what we're talking about. And new mental health... Um, 
uh, I don't want to say disorders, new mental health struggles, I guess we'll go with that word for the well for the time being, uh, emerge and we need terms for them. Nomophobia. Do you know what that is? Uh, let me ask you a few questions. Do you have trouble putting your phone down? Do you feel anxious when you know you might not have access to your phone uh, for whatever reason for a few hours? Do thoughts of not having access to your phone cause some problems or distress? If you have extreme fear of your phone, you might have nomophobia. But again, it's fear of not having access to your phone. So it's that anxiety if you have to leave it behind or you can't find it or um, you're going to be, you know, not available for a few hours, nomophobia. And that's a real anxiety. You notice everyone's always like looking for their phone, grabbing their phone, keeping it in eyesight. I don't have my phone. And I mean, some of it's very realistic. Like I know my phone has my entire clinical schedule in it. So without my phone, I don't have my schedule. Uh, credit cards are paid through my phone. Um, emails for work and other important things. Uh, my entire you know music playlist my f important photos. So it's understandable. It, it's bigger than just, oh, you can't live without your phone. Well, no, I can't live without my schedule. I can't live without my music that I listen to throughout the day and is actually part of my mental health because I use it for self-care. Um, communication with my friends and family members is actually part of my mental health and my self-care. So yeah, I need to be able to interface with the world. So I, I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I think it's very understandable, but we want to we wanna have a, a, a clarity around when is it getting to be too extreme? right? And the work isn't about removing. The work is never about removing. And even with food, we don't need to get rid of any foods. We just need to reduce our anxiety and the power around the phone, around certain foods, around whatever we're talking about so we can have a healthier relationship to it. It's all about your relationship to these things. We want to make it as robust and soothing as possible. We shouldn't have extreme anxiety or fear if we can't have our phone or be on our phone. So it's about realizing that you might be one of those people and then finding ways to kind of minimize that. So again, a lot of it makes sense, uh, but nomophobia, uh, <laughs> originally was called no mobile phone phobia, which is completely ridiculous, especially because I don't hear anyone ever even say the word mobile phone. So it's like outdated. But again, this is a bunch of white cis hetero people slapping around all these terms, which is how a lot of mental health goes. Um, nomophobia, though, is again, persistent fear uh, of not having your phone. And it, and, and, and it can have a negative impact on your life. And I've noticed that in the middle of an important conversation, people are grabbing or going on their phone. And, and it's a little bit more than the anxiety as to why they're doing that. But it's also about the familiarity and comfort of, of being on it, right? And also some of that impulse that's not necessarily in the definition, but I want to add that in there, right? We need to work on it if we can't get through a conversation without checking it. Because I think checking your phone is part of this. How much of your day can you go through without checking? What is it you're checking in on? Sometimes it's reasonable, but often it's not. You don't always need to be updated on your feeds. So that's in there. Um, and this is a result of multiple studies. Uh, according to one in 2019, Almost 53% of people who owned a phone felt anxious when they didn't have their phone, had a dead battery, or had no access to phone service through Wi-Fi. 2017, um, they looked at a bunch of individuals. 17% uh, had mild. 60% were moderate. So check that out. 60% had moderate levels of fear and anxiety if they couldn't have access to, to phone use. 22% were severe. So 60 and 22, <clears throat> we're, we're pushing in the 80s, have moderate to severe. That is a lot of people. 
And again, I think it's because our phones have become a buffer to intimacy. I think our phones have become a way to keep a lot of stimulation going. We dissociate on them. And it, and it's that none of those things are bad. It's just that we have a lot of familiar, familiarity and ease and we're just used to those states. And that's why I'm always telling people things like one thing at a time. Learn how to just be focused on one thing at a time. And we'll come back to that again in a minute. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, so what are the symptoms? We talked about that. Um, it's, it's negatively impacting your mental health and, and some of that's looking at how it gets in the way of maybe relationships you're in, right? Um, and, and just your ability to be present in a meeting or at work or in a movie or whatever it is. Like how present are you able to be knowing that it's off and that you can't check it or you can't be on it, right? Even like a, even a plane ride. Right, you see some people having to still like pay for Wi-Fi. Some of it again reasonable, and others it's because they just can't imagine not having a couple hours of access to their Instagram, which is wild. Um, so again, phobias are types of anxiety. So it's really about the anxiety and the fear part. So possible symptoms, uh, emotional symptoms would be worry, fear, and panic when you think about not having your phone or not being able to use it. Um, agitation. If you have to put your phone down or knowing you won't be able to use it for a while, that little bit of that anxious agitation, that's a diagnostic feature. Uh, you know, panic or anxiety if you can't find it. Like really sit with that. I've felt that where I can't find my phone and it's, I've had straight up panic and it's like, why panic, right? Because I'm used to having immediate availability and of all the important features that are part of my phone. But that's fascinating to have that panic response. Um, irritation and stress if you can't check it. And then physical symptoms, you know, again, these are going to be very common for those with anxiety issues. Tightness in your chest, trouble breathing, some shaking, increased sweating, rapid heartbeat. I've felt some of that when I couldn't find my phone and I'm thinking, great. I'm not going to be able to have access to my schedule. I'm not going to be able to, you know, use the credit card part for my clinical practice. Um, no one's going to be able to reach me. I have to be able to check my emails to see if clients are having any issues or concerns, right? So you can feel that welling up. Am I going to go to the phone store and get a new one? How much is that going to cost? How long is that going to take? I mean, like, it's quite, it's quite amazing. Um, so anyways, if you realize you have this, um, Actually, I think let's take a break. We'll take a little break. When we come back, we'll keep talking about nomophobia. Yes, this new fear and anxiety of phone use. And again, the stats are high. So we'll take a little break. We'll come back. We'll keep breaking this on down and talk about ways to kind of try to have a better relationship. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back and we're talking about nomophobia, which is fear of not having access to your cell phone and the numbers are rising. Studies have shown, and we said this in the last segment, that about 85% of people that were studied had moderate to severe nomophobia, which means they have fear, anxiety, agitation, or panic when they are going to not be able to access their phone or can't find their phone, right? That forced space or distance, 85%, that is not okay. Um, so let's talk about some of the behavioral characteristics that might show you, you have this. Ready? Think about this for a second, though, because I had to run myself through this, and I was, like, horrified. Okay, you got your phone, right? You have, do you take it with you to bed? Yeah, most people do. Some people fall asleep on it, and it's literally on their lap or under the pillow. Some people, it has to be by their bed. Is it your alarm clock? Okay, cool, but nonetheless, notice that it's in your hand. It's by you. You know where it is. It's within sight, right? Some people take it into the bathroom with them. God forbid you leave it wherever it was. Why does it need to be in the bathroom with you? You need to be swiping around right before and after the shower, <clears throat> uh, checking it constantly. How many times in an hour do you check your phone? And, and, and especially in the context of not even waiting for something. 
How many hours a day do you spend on it? We've talked about that where your, our iPhones will tell us that's horrifying. Do you feel helpless or hopeless without it? Do you check all the time to see if you have it? How often are you scrolling? Like all of this stuff starts to really build such an interesting syndrome. So what causes this? Well, you know, again, I, I think that it's, it's moving into its own uh, constellation of causes and, and purposes. I think it's a little distinct from other things because again, like I said, our phones are our access to our entire lives. It's not just a meaningless technology. Like I said, our schedule, that's how we connect to the wider world. That's how we make plans. That's how we get information. So I think there's some reasonableness. I think some of the issues are cultural as well. And we're maybe scapegoating the phones in some ways, but um, existing information about this suggests that it occurs more frequently in teenagers and young adults. And I think that that's also just generational that older generations uh, don't use phones in the same way as we do. And uh, so maybe that's why a lot of the anxiety is not there and uh, they haven't been around as long. Uh, we don't have a specific cause, but I think there's a multitude of reasons why. Um, they, they do believe that there's a sense of isolation and detachment that's part of it, feeling not part of, feeling very isolated and alone, right? And if your phone is one of your main methods of contacting or connecting with people you care about, you're going to feel pretty lonely without it, you know? Um, and then again, they say it's part of this fear of loneliness that pushes on it. Um, dun, 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 dun. Sorry, I'm reading through this research really quickly. Gosh, losing the phone is part of that. Okay, so how's it diagnosed? Well, again, how often are you looking at it? Is it getting in the way of important times where you're supposed to be present to other things? Is it getting in the way of your sleep? Are you falling, you know, falling asleep holding it? Um, and treatment, you know, again, we're we're doing exposure therapy where we're getting people familiar with calming themselves down and regulating themselves and really dismantling any panicky thought process processes between their ability to use their phones. Um they're even talking about use of medications for some people that have had really severe issues, uh, beta blockers, benzos. But really, again, I want us to all get a little bit of uh, familiarity with having time and space away. And that's why the number one thing I always say is one thing at a time. If you're going to be on your phone, be on your phone. Tell everyone to hold on a second and pause the movie. If you're going to be watching a movie, be watching a movie and put your phone somewhere else. But we don't want to be watching a movie while on our phone. We don't want to be on our phone while in a conversation one thing at a time. If you're going to be in line, just be in line. You don't need to be in line and on your phone one thing at a time. And if you're, and I always love the idea also of having your phone used in a special area. I keep mine now plugged in over by the wall. And if I want to use it, I go stand over by the wall and use it and then put it back down and come back to the rest of my life. I'm trying to isolate it out. I'm trying to not let it be uh, play a starring role in the middle of my day, swiping endlessly, looking at nothing that meaningful, right? So you can plug it in somewhere, leave it there, use it there. But if you're going to bring it out into the rest of your apartment or house or world, one thing at a time, you shouldn't be multitasking. Um, also get an alarm clock, leave your phone out of the bedroom. Don't make it the last thing or first thing that you're looking at. Allow yourself to get familiar without having access to your phone. During my weekends, I'm off it for hours now. I put it in a drawer. No one needs to reach me during the weekend. It's my weekends. I get back to everyone on Monday. I don't care what it is. It's my weekends. No one needs to be on their phone and be very thoughtful about if you're actually having fun with it. Cause I appreciate you want to check out, eat ice cream, play video games, swipe, post. I get that, but just make sure you're doing it in a controlled manner and that it's making you feel good, right? Spending time away is going to be the best part. Also, for some of the social pieces, encourage your friends and loved ones to have some more in-person engagement. 
we are getting a little too familiar with just texting and FaceTiming as the totality of our relationship. But for some people, that's all they want and that's okay. There are some people that all I want to do is text and check in on them every now and then. I actually don't want to spend real time with them. I don't want to be that close or nor do I need to be. And for some people that have some mental health struggles or other disabilities, this is the preferred method or the only method. If they don't really have transportation or access or they have a lot of social anxiety for them, I'm glad they have it. So I want to really honor that. But we really just want to look at the role it's playing in our life. Is it getting in the way? How often are you using it? Is it preventing you from being present to other people and other things? That's really when we have to be, you know, a little bit concerned. So yeah, heavy topic, um, but an important one. So uh, yeah. All right, coming up next, we're going to be sliding into those DMs. We got a DM that came in around diet culture and I don't participate in that. So I don't give diet tips or workout tips. It's all about intuitive eating and intuitive movement. So uh, thanks to a DM that came in, we'll be talking about that. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back. And uh, before we get into the DMs, just want to unpack something. I was looking at the New York Post. There's an article about people losing their damn minds over a Missouri congresswoman saying birthing people instead of saying the word women you know as in the reference to the gender that gives birth she said birthing people and this was at a speech at the capitol um rep cory bush uh, I, I like cory uh and here's a quote i sit before you today as a single mom as a nurse an activist a congresswoman and i'm committed to doing the absolute most to protect black mothers to protect black babies to protect black birthing people and to save lives well, you know the Democrats lost their damn minds. Birthing, what does that mean? It means men give birth. Men have ovaries. Men birth children. Men have vaginas. I know, it's shocking, right? But we now live in a world where we're finally recognizing and amplifying the voices of people that are intersexed and trans and non-binary. So to say birthing removes the gender part. Whether you like it or not, it doesn't matter. It's respect. It's human rights. There are people that are not female or female-identified right? That have female genitals and organs and give birth. And so the word is birthing individuals that birth. Here's a book for what you need to understand about the birthing process. We can't say women anymore. There are pregnant men. Yes, they are trans because trans people exist. There's tons of articles of tr pregnant trans men. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> I love the healthy diversity and creativity that exists in our world around all these factors. Get familiar with it. Again, doesn't matter if you like it or not. It's a human rights issue. It's a mental health issue. So people that give birth, people that are birthers. Yes. And this rep, this congresswoman is supporting all of them. Because if you support black lives, you support every black life, cis or trans, gay or straight. Right? If you're all about human rights, you got to be all about human rights that include trans people, Black people, oh, also Palestinian lives as well. We can't pick and choose which lives we value. So we value all lives, including the Palestinians that are getting murdered. So uh, sending love, care, and positive vibes to them. But let's switch gears quickly. It's time to glide into those DMs, brought to you by Astroglide. Sliding into the DMs. Tonight's DM says, hey, Dr. Chris, what are some diet plans that you've tried that you like? I feel like I've tried cutting carbs and sugar, but nothing seems to work. Um, I don't talk about diets. I don't talk about weight loss. Uh, that is not mental health centered. Um, that's actually talking in terms of toxic diet culture and disordered eating. So I won't give any advice. I won't discuss counting, you know, calorie counting and weight loss. It's really toxic and problematic. Uh, love the body you have. You don't have to love your body either. It's all really about body neutrality, which is not caring. 
You know, move your body, eat nutritious foods if you choose, and focus on your mental health. Focus on not talking about your body, focusing on following people that are hyper obsessed with that. Your worth and your value are not tied to that. Your mental health is actually tied to the dissociation of that. Your body's a vehicle. Yes, we need to take care of it, but that's not tied to the weight it has. Health exists at every size. And um, oftentimes, larger bodied people are stigmatized and don't get the health care they need because people assume everything's tied to their larger body. And that's just not true. And a lot of things go unresearched and diagnosed. So the work is really about move your body in ways that feel good and joyous to you. Eat food that makes you happy. And if you're interested in nutritious foods, you can find out more about that on your own. Um, but the work is seeing our body as a vehicle, not tied to our beauty, not tied to our worth, not tied to our value. We're trying to move away from that thinking. And I want you to avoid things that talk about weight loss and calorie counting and scales. That's toxic. That is not mental health centered. Um, and it's also very fat phobic and body shaming. And we don't do that. We do not do that on Loveline. So I'm not answering that question or anything like that. Um, kind of surprised you even sent a question like that in. I thought you knew better. But if you want to learn more about it all, read my book, Rebel Love. I get a lot in that book into um, how to move away from toxic diet and gym culture. You know, a lot of things that are actually part of disordered, unhealthy eating has been normalized. You know, like cheat days and cutting out certain food groups and saying good food and bad food. All of that is disordered eating and we've normalized it in our culture and fasting. And we don't need to be doing any of that, truly. So, um, yeah, we're going to move away from that question. But if you do have a question that's appropriate and mental health centered, please drop it in the DMs on uh, in our Loveline IG page. Coming up next, though, we're going to be talking about work and mental health and uh, past episodes of Loveline. As always, over at wearechannelq.com, but uh, stick around and join us. Later, we're also going to be talking about pets. Oh, I know. Mine has saved me in my mental health. Um, all right, y'all. Stick around and join us, though. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new Channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back and uh, we're going to be talking about, I'm looking at an article, uh, some information done by the National Organization for Mental Health. And they're looking at the impact that, uh, gosh, work has on your mental functioning. And it's, it's an article and a story on why employers should pay attention to employees' mental health. I guess the caveat at the beginning of this is I just want to call out my own position that I, I, I've, always, I've been an independent practitioner for almost two decades, so I've never participated in a corporate structure, right? Some of my media work um, has me having a leg in and a leg out, but you know, just acknowledging that you know, as um, a host, um, as a therapist, it's a very different experience. So I don't have the maybe the most accurate examples. I think it's an important topic to talk about, but I think that those that are uh, a part of the corporate structure or a standard workplace environment have for decades, you know, you have to kind of translate some of these perspectives. So I just want to acknowledge that if I seem, I don't know, not fully clued in, it's because I'm not. <laughs> but I think the mental health topic's an important one. You know, our jobs are where the bulk of people spend uh, most of their time, you know, looking at some of the research, you see how many hours people spend at work versus with, well, actually the amount of hours spent at work, which equates to the amount of time you spend with, uh, colleagues and coworkers versus friends or family members is really fascinatingly imbalanced, right? If you're working a standard 40 hour work week at an office, um, depends on what kind of office setup or style you have, but, um, you know, you're with your colleagues 40 hours a week and uh, how many hours are you maybe with your loved ones? So the workplace environment does really matter. It's also a site of a lot of anxiety and stress for individuals, right? Um, they often feel disempowered and that's where you have to get your needs met. Um, we have bills, 
You know what I mean? We live in a capitalist structure, so work is required. Now, I'd reported on how over in China, they started to uh, try out a four-day work week and a six-hour workday, and it had nothing but uh, positive outcomes, right, on people's life satisfaction, mental health, also energy levels, and of course, productivity skyrocketed because people were happier, they were rested, they could focus more. Because again, you can't focus for eight hours a day. You just can't. I don't know what the stats would show as to what percentage of that time one could actually expect work or output, but it's not going to be for eight hours. That's just not possible, right? We, we can't have uh, focused attention for that long. That's not good for us. But um, so anyway, um, I thought this was just a really important topic to talk about. So, you know, it's getting discussed more and more and more and more pressures being put on these systems and institutions to really pay attention to the actual human beings that are, you know, on the ground working, right? And that they have to be humanized. And I've said this as well, and I've spoken this uh, to the educational system, and I'm not saying that these are easy answers, and I'm not saying that these changes are gonna come about immediately, but everyone needs different accommodations. You can't have the same expectations on every student, nor can you have the same expectations on every employee. Uh, some people are, are struggling with mental illness. Some people are caretakers. Some people are coming from a home where there's a loved one with a mental illness. So not everyone shows up at the office uh, with the same mental state or the same social supports, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so people will need different accommodations. One employee might be a single mother and has a sick child to worry about or a child in general or more than one child. They're going to need different accommodations than maybe someone who has a stay-at-home caregiver or can pay for childcare. Um, one person might be early in recovery and needing to participate in work in one way. Someone else might be battling serious depression. Uh, we're all on the mental health scale somewhere. All of us have mental issues, disorders, and illnesses and struggles. It's just to what extreme, to what severity, and what context, right? So um, I guess we'll just zero in. Look, the benefits of prioritizing employees' mental health, and I, I've never really seen this done. I, I have never been a part of a system or an institution that really, really focused on mental health first. And that's a bummer, you know, but I want this to get more normalized. Um, but researchers found that mental illnesses like depression, stress, anxiety, to be just as debilitating as some other physical mental diseases. And that's why it's important to create an environment that promotes mental well-being. But again, mental illness, mental struggles are invisible. Uh, they have uh, some components that are maybe behavioral, and so you can see some of the symptomology. But the, the, the issue itself is invisible, where uh, most physical impairments are visible. You can actually see a fractured arm. You can actually see someone who uses a wheelchair, right? Um, or a cane or has visual impairment. Um, those, those are easier for people to buy into. Again, mental illness often gets relegated to toughen up, pull together, work harder, you're lazy or whatever it is, right? So the benefits of really focusing on mental health, uh, and this is again, a massive re research project coming out of the National Institute of Mental Health. They said, first, it reduces absenteeism. You know, um, the percentage of employees who call in sick when they're too depressed. If work was a healthier environment that focused on mental illness, many of them would be willing to come in those days. But instead, they're calling out, making up excuses at times if they don't think that the mental health will be honored and valued. But again, a better workplace encourages more people to come to work instead of avoiding it. And you reduce that of absenteeism by focusing on mental wellness. Uh, better work output. Makes sense to me too, right? Um, employees with mental illnesses may not be able to fulfill their, their job duties. Prioritizing mental health can improve work output. Healthier employee-employer relationships. Um, I love this quote. Who doesn't want to work in a friendly work environment free of hostility and toxicity? Such a situation can only be achieved if you convey to your employees that their well-being is important. Uh, they will surely reciprocate empathy and friendliness to create a mutually beneficial work environment. 
it's sad that we even have to remind people, hey, be kind. <laughs> you know what I mean? And some people's jobs have such a hierarchy of a lot of, uh, you know, a lot, a multitude of individuals and positions of power that they're under, such a massive trickle down effect, you know? Um, okay, we got to take a break. Uh, watching the clock. When we come back, we're going to keep talking about the intersections of mental health and work. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on Channel Q, brought to you by Astroglide. All right, we're back, and we're just talking about mental health, how it intersects with work, right? Uh, we spend a lot of our lives at work, especially people that work in a traditional office structure, corporate culture or otherwise, but this like centralized place that you go to to do your work where you're surrounded by many people and different hierarchies of power. And we're just looking at the mental health impact and how you know mental health is invisible. Physical health tends to be visible. So it's easier to be taken more seriously where mental health struggles, a lot of people are told, pull together, toughen up, show up anyway, we all get depressed or sad sometimes, and we really don't afford people the opportunity to really have their mental health taken seriously, you know? And uh, we have to talk about that. Anyone in any position of power in whatever department you're working in, we know we're talking about how prioritizing employees' mental health reduces absenteeism, uh, creates better work output, um, healthier employee-employer relationships, right? Uh, just general kindness. Um, but then the question begins, well, how do we create that healthier workplace? I mean, the first thing I always want to remind people is just care and compassion. Realize that we're talking about and working amongst other human beings. Life is hard enough as it is, especially the past year. Why make work have to be a place where people are made more miserable or life is more difficult? It's just work, you know? And I know that it's more than that, but there's also an element where it is just that, right? And people should come first. And I know that some people look at me sideways when I say that, but like, oh my God, I want to create a culture where we care about the impact of people first before we talk about numbers and, and money generated and, and units sold. I want it to be like, we're talking about a person, you know? And I know that those that work in these different work structures have probably been dehumanized, dehumanized often, um, you know, feeling as though they're easily replaceable or they're not important. But then the expectation still falls on the employee to somehow be loyal to the company, the same company that maybe isn't even loyal to them, right? Not offering sick leave or, you know, parental benefits when you're giving birth or, or, or mental health days or whatever, whatever, else, whatever it is we're talking about. But, you know, work overload, uh, not being able to take breaks, long hours, <laughs> employee or employer or colleague hostility, all these things can create mental health issues or just amplify and make the ones that are already present worse, right? We need to be talking about these things. Um, and it comes from the top down, you know, don't create a hostile environment. Um, but here's some ways we can promote mental well-being um, if you're an employer or supervisor or someone in a position of power. First, equality. Wouldn't it be nice if everyone felt safe at work, regardless of their body shape or size, um, racial identity, gender presentation, sexual orientation? Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> you know, if no one was made to feel bad because they're fat or black, um, disabled, gay, trans, all these different exploited, marginalized identities. So you got to work on creating programs that make people feel cared for. Put these marginalized identities in positions of power. It's not enough to just have them at the office. You need to see them in positions of power. That's where true equality happens. Um, and also asking different individuals what their special needs might be. All these different identities and social locations will need different accommodations. Everyone deserves to be treated equally, but will need different accommodations. That's the caveat. We're all equal. I'm sorry, that's the statement. We're all equal, but we need different accommodations. And mental health is 
a, a powerful entry point into that. People's mental health is different. You can't have the same expectations. I really want the educational system to hear that. And I know that that means a massive restructuring, but um, that matters. Also, even in relationships of any kind, you can't have the same expectations on each friend or each person you're dating because, again, they're different people with different needs, different histories, different traumas, different worries. Coming from various supportive or lack thereof support kind of housing and families and social networks, like all of that really builds who we are. Uh, but anyway, focusing on ways to create a healthier workplace, equally distribute the workload, try not to overburden certain employees. That's a really beautiful one. Um, de delegating, checking in on everyone's workload. Do you need help or do you need that offloaded? You don't want to burn people out, overload them. Um, limit the number of hours each employee needs to put in. I love that. Reducing hours. Uh, if possible, have a counsel or a therapist for employees to speak with. I saw that in uh, that show Billions. They had an on-staff therapist that was there to help anyone, any employee who might need some mental health support or counseling. What a phenomenal thing. I mean, my God, you can't go any further than, than that as a way to say, like, we really do care about mental health. Also, maybe having people in positions of power talk about their own mental health struggles. That really normalizes, you know, having uh, employers or supervisors talking openly about their own struggles just to let people know this is a safe space. But then it has to be. You then can't weaponize and hold that or use that against um, an employer or colleague, right? So that's that question, right? You got to normalize it, but I actually really stand behind it being safe. Um, ensure you're paying employees fairly. I mean, I keep seeing those memes about a lot of fast food restaurants and maybe other companies having their signs up saying, no one wants to work, we're hiring. It's like, people will work there if it's a safe environment and you pay well and offer benefits. But if you don't, well, then you don't deserve to have employees. You don't, you're not entitled to employees. You get them if it's worth them working there. And if you paid people a living wage, they'd want to work for you. So the places that are saying no one wants to work here or understaffed, you're telling on yourself. You're saying, we exploit our workers. That's why they're not here. If you didn't do that, they would be. I have a list of people who'd come work there if you didn't do that. You know what I mean? So it's like an odd way to say that. People aren't lazy. People now have better boundaries and they think that they deserve the best. It's good. Um, be kind, encouraging, empathetic. Oh my God, I, it hurts my heart that I have to remind people that, but I work with clients who will come in and tell me stories of different work situations where, again, people are dehumanized, no kindness. And it's like, my God, you know? Um, it's kind of it. Just talk about it, normalize it, be kind. I mean, these are all reasonable ideas. And I think it's important for everyone to have access to that. Imagine if we created a world where people could just feel good and enjoy their lives. Like, why is that such a radical idea? Most of the things that we call radical are actually reasonable. It's that the way we do things now, what's been normalized or is traditional, is so problematic that a lot of people can't even consider otherwise. And so it's treated as though it's like speculative fiction, right? Like these wild things that we're imagining. But as we see, social movements do create change and they do have a lot of power. So... I don't know. Just take a look around and say, what can you do? Everyone can do something. Even if you're at the bottom of the, of the, of the hierarchy, I'm sure you can do something from the bottom up as well, right? We all have a role in this. We all, our presence all contributes to some of these systems, making them worse or making them better. So I challenge you to make it better. We got to take a break though. We'll be back. So stick around, come join us. DMs coming up real soon though. If you got a DM for us, put it in the DMs on our Loveline IG page. Love to hear from you. Listen to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, cutest article ever. I love this. So it's an article talking about how imperative it is to honor and value the possibility of your pet having saved your life. And I thought, what a heartwarming concept because I've recommended that to some of my clients. Go get a pet. 
we need another life in the room with us. We need something to care and cuddle, something that's excited to see us, someone to come home to, you know what I mean? Having some energy in the space. And my pet has been life-saving for both me and my mental health in every way possible. Um, we've really bonded because I'm home more, but also it's just nice to have something to come home to, someone who's excited to see you. I think it's such a meaningful thing. The only caveat I keep telling people is just make sure that your life traditionally once things shift and change that it can still accommodate the needs of the pet, right? You don't want to get a pet and then no longer be around or home to spend time. Um, it's not going to really feel so great to, you know, this animal. So just be thoughtful about that. Um, but if you haven't gotten one, consider it. I mean, consider your living situation, consider your finances, consider those around you. I know, you know, you got to be aware of that because um, it is a responsibility and it changes your life and the life of those around you. Dating becomes different. Your work schedule becomes different. Having at home to maybe walk your dog or to feed your cat or whatever it is. I got a cat because that's more my personality style. My cat's very friendly, very playful. We spend a lot of time together. We cuddle. It's perfect, but it's lower maintenance and I can be gone for longer hours if I need to be. Um, so you have to really find an animal um, companion that's going to really, really seamlessly kind of fit into whatever kind of work and social environment you have. Again, if you work long hours, travel a lot, socialize a lot, please don't get a dog. The dog doesn't want to just spend time sitting all day long in a crate or at home by themselves. Like you're probably not maybe best suited to have a dog. Maybe get a cat, maybe not even a cat. I don't know, but just be thoughtful because I see some people get pets and they're never home. Um, and then I, I wonder what they're doing that for. Who's that really serving? You know, definitely not them, especially if it's going to stress them out, but definitely not the pet if the pet's kind of sitting home ignored, right? Um, I thought I would just kind of end this segment uh, a little bit of a harder topic. So maybe it's great that we kind of intro it with something softer like like uh, pet companions. But do you remember when I was talking about th this individual? It really, I think it came out of Boston. They were trying to do a, a straight pride, like a hetero pride. I'm looking at um, some work someone put together as to reasons why we don't need a straight pride. And I thought it was kind of interesting to really help develop empathy for those that maybe don't have a lot for the LGBTQIA community. And I keep trying to report on all that's going on with the attacks, it being illegal still, all the bills being passed to not allow transgender individuals to have access to the right bathrooms for them and to be able to play on sports teams. Um, all these protections rolling back. It's now Idaho leading the charge to make it illegal for them to even discuss same-sex relationships at school. Like It's quite horrifying. Um, and, so the, and so there's your answer. That's why. That's why there needs to be a gay pride. A gay pride is not a celebration. It's born out of... Um, rebellion. It's born out of demanding rights. Um, it was a protest and now it's funneled its way into celebration, which is great, but it shouldn't have ever been needed. And it's mere presence is a sign that things are still imbalanced, right? Um, straight and cis people aren't murdered for being straight or cis. People are murdered just for being gay or trans and no other reason. That's why we need gay pride and more support and allies. Cis and straight people can travel without fear of being straight or cis. That's right. People are punished by death for being homosexual. So when straight people are researching travel and holidays, they don't have to look into, is it illegal for me to be there? Gay and trans people do. They could literally be imprisoned or stoned to death. Straight and cis people have always been able to legally married and have had their relationships validated and legitimized. Same-sex marriage is still an ongoing battle in some places, still legal or illegitimized all the time. There's people that won't even bake them a cake or officiate their wedding. The Pope is not down with signing off on gay weddings, bigot. 
You know what I mean? So we got a lot of work to do. Straight says people have never had, have never been jailed for being straight or caned or stoned. Straight and cis people have never been called sinners by their religion outright for nothing else other than just being how and who they are and loving someone. <clears throat> straight and cis people don't face workplace discrimination for being straight or cis. Yes, straight people and cis people have issues, but none of them are being straight or cis. Gay people and trans people start the day already at that possible disadvantage without having even left the house or doing anything, right? Straight and cis people uh, get to see themselves in every movie and every song and every book, always centered, always the main characters, always included. Gay trans people, not at all. It's now starting to shift and change to get a little bit better, but a lot of the stuff that's rooted in the storylines of gay and trans people is rooted in trauma and their struggles. It's not often just a celebratory thing. It's rooted in these like old school narratives that I'm personally so bored of, of the coming out story. I know, I know we've seen it, you know, but that's still important to many people, but we'd love to see some expansive storylines because trans and gay people live total full lives that are worthy of celebration. Let's see more of that. Um, straight and cis people don't have to correct people on their pronouns or their sexual orientation because everyone assumes you're straight or cis unless proven otherwise. So straight people don't have to prove themselves, right? Straight and cis people aren't denied medical care for being straight. Gay people and trans people are. I've seen it happen. I've had clients come in and tell me. It's quite heartbreaking. So that's why we need all the allies. That's why we need the support, right? All right, y'all. Coming up next, we're going to be doing some DMs. So if you got a DM for us, drop an our Loveline IG page in the DMs. And uh, if you want to check out past episodes of Loveline, go over to wearechannelq.com. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new Channel Q and on Odyssey. Okay, now it's time to glide into those DMs brought to you by Astroglide. Sliding into the DMs. This one says, hey, Dr. Chris, instead of leaving my abusing boyfriend, I cheated on him and I feel really bad I hurt him. It's been over a year since he dumped me. How can I stop this remorse and move on for real? Whoa, there's so much in such a very short question. Uh, instead of leaving your abusive boyfriend, uh, you cheated on him and you feel really bad. It's been over a year since he dumped you. Well, you're out of the abusive relationship, so that's good. That's the first thing I really, truly care about is that. Um, we want to really move into this year, moving away from people that are emotionally or physically abusive. Never okay, never acceptable, right? And we've normalized a lot of forms of emotional abuse. People name calling, people going through our phones, people listening to our phone conversations, people telling us who our friends can be, us feeling like we need to ask for permission. You're in an emotionally abusive relationship if you're afraid to talk about certain topics. All those are signs of emotional abuse. If your partner's anger is really over the top, if they throw and slam things, that's implied violence towards you, even though it's done just near you and not at you. We're not, we're not staying in those relationships anymore, right? Uh, and you cheated on me and you feel really bad. Well, release that. You know, how, how do you get through that? By letting yourself know that you're a better and different person now. Are you sorry? Maybe you're not. But are you willing to not do that again? That's where the work is. Only be in relationships with people that you care about, that you don't want to harm and that don't harm you. And that helps us better live from our integrity, right? Because that's often what cheating's about. And I know that for you is probably a way of reasserting yourself and getting your power back. It doesn't do that though. No right, no wrong is made right by cheating ever, right? And uh, I'd rather you have just left your abusive relationship versus staying and then cheating as though somehow that makes that situation better. But um, like I said, move forward and be in healthy relationships, ones that you don't want to harm because that has meaning and worth to you. And if there's a problem, deal with it head on versus finding these 
indirect ways of trying to kind of reassert yourself and get your power back because it doesn't it doesn't work because because it can't do what it's you're trying to help it do right that's what we talk about a, a faulty coping mechanism your way of coping was cheating that's not a solution doesn't provide the benefit you're hoping it will um it's kind of like a broader conversation about cheating. Stop doing that. If you don't want to be in a relationship with someone, leave. If it's harmful, leave, right? If you're not having the kind of sex life you want, ask for it. If you're in a sexist relationship, start initiating or doing some sex therapy or open up your relationship, you know? Um, whatever the issues are that you're trying to solve with cheating, it's such a harmful thing. And again, I'm, I'm moving beyond this question because I understand that you're in an abusive relationship. I'm now kind of globalizing and, and moving on to the broader topic, but... Um, the, the rates and stats around cheating are far too high and it really can traumatize people for really long periods of time. Some people actually never get over it. I do want us to get to a place where the place where it doesn't have to be such a severe injury. I think we do dramatize that specific breach of trust. I think it should fall under just broken trust and that is meaningful and that is important. And I want us to hold everyone accountable um, but we have to start with ourselves, right? Like this really is a conversation to the cheaters, uh, the people that are cheated on. All they can do is try to be part of creating an amazing relationship, you know, that's worth looking after and being approachable so their partner can come to them with whatever the issues are that they think cheating is a solution to. But this is really called acting to the cheaters. Grow up, be better, care more for people, find better solutions. If you don't want to be in a relationship, leave. And if you don't think you're built for monogamy, that's okay. Be in open relationships only. Some people are not built for monogamy and a lot of people need to stop trying. If you're always failing, it's not right for you. That's okay. Be in open, non-monogamous relationships. You know, ask for what you need. And you can ask for that at any time during a relationship. You know, you're allowed to create that shift. Um, I just want us to stop harming each other, <laughs> you know? Uh, so before you get into new relationships, everyone just sit and ask yourself, let me look back at who I was. What work do I have to do to be better for this next person? Am I ready to enter someone's life or will I be bad for them? And maybe take a little pause, do some self work. You know, it's, it's for you. It's for them. It's for everyone. All right. So that is our show. Um, past episodes of the love line over at we are And if you got a DM for us, drop in the DMS on our love line and G page. And tomorrow we're going to be talking about all sorts of stuff. More importantly, chemistry, compatibility, lust, all the different things that get in our way from having the most robust, resilient, amazing relationships we can have. As always, y'all thanks for hanging out and y'all enjoy the rest of your night.